0: to Average Genius. It's a podcast about all kinds of jobs and the unique people that perform them. And the unique people that perform them sit back, relax, and enjoy the show.
1: Here we go, another episode of Average Genius, and today I'm really excited because I'm talking to a couples therapist. I've talked to a regular therapist in real life, meaning a therapist that doesn't work with couples but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of differences with a couples therapist. So welcome to my guest.
0: Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Paige. I'm a couples therapist in Central Florida. Yes, there are a lot of different dynamics working with couples rather than working with just one individual of maybe possibly a family unit.
1: I'm sure it's a wild world sometimes, but first I wanted to start with a little bit about training what does it take to actually become a couples therapist in terms of your degrees and Mm. uh, knowledge base?
0: Well, really almost anybody can become a couples therapist who gets the right degree, but to be a good couples therapist, I'll have to go more in depth about that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, in terms of training, what you'll always have to do is get your regular bachelor's degree, like, like And that can really be in anything. A lot of people think it has to be psychology. Mine was, but I know some therapists who had like their bachelor's in hospitality management or even like business, like a lot of grad programs will accept people of all kinds of walks of life just because they like that variety and diversity. And it's just different experience to make you a better counselor sometimes. And so, to become a therapist, you'll you'll have to go to grad school. You'll need to be accepted into a master's program. It's usually about two to three years, depending on how rigorous your coursework is or how many classes you want to take at a time. I took my time. I only tried to take like three classes a semester. So I was I was um, I think in grad school for like three years. Uh, I had a lot of support. I had a lot of funding like in terms of graduate assistantships and so I was like all right you know since they're paying for a good majority of my school let me try to get as much education as possible uh, with financial help so that's only the first part though with all the education there's so much more after you graduate so I don't know if you want me to kind of go into that of what it takes still because you're still not a therapist once you graduate your grad program
1: Yeah, we can get into that. But that's interesting. You don't have to have the psychology background to get into the master's. I thought it was kind of like medical school in the way that you have to take a lot of prerequisites.
0: Mm -mm. No, um, I can't think of any like prerequisite that was like required to get into the master's program maybe a basic psychology course because like almost everybody takes that (laughs) Um, but really no you don't need a degree like that like one of my one of my good friends she was um, in entertainment she like worked at SeaWorld and retail and she got into grad school and now she's a sex therapist it's so cool.
1: All right. So she went from entertainment to something else that's fun. So that's good for her. Yeah. 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 But that's, that's nice. You could make a life transition pretty easily. If you wanted to go into therapy, you don't have to go back to undergrad and then to grad school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really amazing. I think the reason for that is they just want people who have like such a diverse life experience. And I think there is um, some truth to the more life experience you have just as um, a person, the better therapist you will have, because you'll be able to understand your client's experience better.
1: Right. You do need the experience. And I was going to ask about that as far as schooling, did they try to teach you what a healthy relationship looks like? And then try to explain it to people who might not have a lot of relationship experience. If you're going to (laughs) be a couple's therapy,
0: Um, you know, what's really crazy about grad school is things are so generalized. When you think about medical school and how like people specialize, like I want to work in surgery or I want to work on the, you know, OBGYN floor. We don't really have that in grad school. It's mostly generalized. So even though my degree was in marriage and family therapy, I took um, one class for couples and then two classes, there's a family one and then a more advanced family two class. And that's all my like family and marriage therapy that I got. It's not enough to prepare you for actual couples therapy. That's why I was kind of saying, well, anybody with the degree technically can do couples or family therapy, but to be a good one, you'll need to get more and more training after grad school.
1: So you got to go into the more training. Is that just clinical type training where you're actually doing therapy and learning on the job? Or is it more courses?
0: A little bit mixture of both. I don't think I would be where I am as a couples therapist today without at least the the basis of training, but also great mentors in how to work with couples. Um, Because when you're in grad school, you're really mainly focused on individuals, even if you take the marriage and family therapy path. And while during my time in grad school, I would have some couples, mm, sometimes it's hard to get couples in the door. (laughs) So it's just a lot of individuals coming for therapy a lot of the time. I'm trying to think of where I was going with that that train of thought in terms of really y- you have to do a lot more research and you have to do a lot more analyzation of your sessions to really be a better couples therapist of am I being you, you got to really think am I being unbiased enough or am I kind of taking a side of the couples because that's really important because your patient is the whole couple unit it's not just one of the persons in the couple so it's really complicated. A lot of dynamics going on all at once.
1: A lot of moving parts. But since the, I guess you did your first session in grad school, do you remember what your first session with a couple was like?
0: Mm, it was great. Um, the earliest couple that I remember, I even remember ne- their names and kind of what they look like. It's crazy. It was years ago, though. They came to me. And one of them, I think, was a student in grad school while I was also in grad school at that same place. And she had this long distance relationship with her partner. So sometimes they would, uh, you know, both be able to come in session and they were really struggling with the topic of sex um, because after a certain amount of time, their sex life became much different and she had a lot of pain. Um, in her genital area, which made it really hard for them to have sex, which really changed their sex life. And as a grad student, and as a, one of the first-time couples, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're trusting me with so something so like vulnerable to that that could be so scary to people to share. It was an amazing experience to be able to learn about their life and love. I really I think I really like doing this because I like seeing the little sparks that I get to see when you see those kind of small moments, like in all the Nicholas Sparks movies that you see, I that this is what I do this for you get to see the glances that they make at each other, or when they crack a smile that shows like I love you, honey, it's amazing to watch.
1: That's an intense first session. And how much knowledge of the session did you have about it going into it? I mean, did you have a write-up of here's their problem? Here's what you're going to be dealing with? Or did you come in and they're like, hey, here's the deal?
0: No, no. When people came in, um, we didn't really know really what was going on. We had someone do um, like an intake screening to make sure that they were appropriate for us, you know, because as grad grad school students, we don't have a lot of experience in someone who's suicidal or active drug use or domestic uh, violence or anything. So we tried to screen out for those things early on. But the general thing is, you know, they came in for relationship issues. And that's the best I got. So (laughs) I knew nothing in my first session until they actually got there. And we started talking about their issues.
1: Is that pretty common now too? You don't really know what's going on until they get in? Or do they provide a description?
0: Um for the most part a lot of practices do work that way. Now it's kind of my preference to know a little bit more before they actually sit down in my office. So what I do is in my private practice I have all paperless paperwork and so I have them sign all the paperwork before I see them. Part of that paperwork is hey, tell me why you're here. Tell me, you know, what's your biggest stressor right now? Tell me what you hope to, you know, have accomplished in therapy? Like what are your expectations by being in therapy? So I'll send out those forms and usually they'll give me some pretty big details of what's going on, which is so super helpful and such a big time saver in that first session because there's so much information to gather when someone first comes in.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that first session has got to just be super intense for everybody in the room, because I don't think a lot of people want to be in therapy. And then you also have to figure out what's going on. And it's just a lot of unknowns.
0: Mm -hmm. I'll get a lot of first time therapy people, not even just couples therapy, but therapy overall. And they'll come in and I kind of check the temperature of the room and I'm like, how's it going guys today? Are we feeling nervous? Any questions before we get started? just to try to help alleviate I, I try to let them know that you know in couples therapy I don't like to see myself as oh this all-knowing being that's you know better than you or telling you what to do or whatever I kind of just tell them hey I'm just like you guys I just happened to have went to grad school and got a few extra years in education about relationships so we're all just here to learn about each other and how to interact better with each other and usually that kind of lessens their nervousness and keeps them a lot calmer
1: brings the tension down. That's nice. I'm sure they Mm -hmm. appreciate that. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) And
1: do you talk to either of the people in the couple beforehand, like a phone call just to get kind of a temperature of things?
0: Uh, some people will do. So I do like a 15 minute consultation, uh, just to run over, um, my style and structure of how, uh, I first start out because I use something called the Gottman method. And we'll get into that in maybe a little bit. I like to also screen out for intensity of care. So if someone seems to be really in crisis or, um, if they're suicidal, they're not appropriate for regular outpatient. They, they need to be seen by someone that day where, uh, I try to, this isn't always um, able to happen, but I try to also screen out for domestic violence because in couples therapy, if there's active physical abuse going on, couples therapy is contraindicated. It's not going to work. It's not going to be effective when there's an abuser involved. It, It just doesn't. So I try to look for that and screen that out as well in that initial phone consultation before I send them all the paperwork and get them in the office.
1: All right. So you're looking for a lot of things. You got a lot going on.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. I am.
1: Yeah. And prior to that session, I was going to ask you, do you feel nervous still when you're going into those first sessions of people because you don't really know what's going on? You don't know if you're going to get in a session and these people are going to break down and cry, if they're going to yell, if they're going to yeah. be quiet, you you don't really know.
0: I don't know. You're, you're right. And um, th- that is a great question. And the answer is yes, I do. <laughs> Not all the time, but it's so crazy. Like sometimes you'll kind of get this gut feeling of, oh, this, this, this one's going to be a lot tougher. There's, there's a lot, whenever there's a lot of betrayal and a lot of resentment that I sensed either from that first phone call or from them filling out the form, I know this is going to be a lot tougher than my couples who are more so on the side of, okay, we think, you know, nice things about each other and actually like each other. The ones who were to the point of, I hate you, I resent you, those I know are going to be a lot tougher, especially in those first sessions.
1: So it sounds like there's kind of a spectrum of cases, but I was going to ask, is it typically more that people have gotten to a point where they really can't stand each other and they're just trying to salvage the relationship or are there people who are coming in early because they just want to make sure it continues and it's healthy?
0: Uh, I wish it was the latter, but it is the former. <laughs> it is. It's really sad too, because research shows that it's about year six or seven, on the relationship for all the years of the garbage buildup all of the negativity it's about seven years until they get to my office to actually work on the relationship so all that damage is happening during all that time so more often than not they're really at a negative crisis space when they get to my office and see me yeah it's tough
1: yeah can you feel that when you're in the room you can just tell that mm-hmm. these are people who really don't want to be in a relationship anymore
0: Mm-hmm. So I can see it. I can see it in their eyes. Generally, someone asked me this question the other day. They asked me, can you tell when a couple is going to make it when you first meet them? <laughs> and in the first session, I can get a generally good idea of how much one work they're willing to put into making the relationship work because some couples are at the point where they don't want to bother trying, or maybe one partner's in, one partner's out. And those don't have as good of a chance just because it's like pushing a rock up a hill. Or if I see something called contempt, which is one of the four horsemen from the Gottmans. And if I see contempt, like if I see eye rolling, or if I see them making maybe backhanded comments about their partner during session, I already know, okay, okay. Mm, they're in something called negative sentiment override, which means they really see the relationship in a dark light rather than a positive one, which makes it a lot more work for all three of us.
1: Oh, definitely. It's got to be awful if one person really doesn't want to be there. They've been dragged into therapy because they're yeah. not going to want to work on anything.
0: Mm-hmm. And I tell them straight up, I'm like, this is only going to work if I have both of you on board. Like, I, I'm very real and very genuine with them upfront. So. Sometimes it works and they'll come back after that. Sometimes not, but generally they, they still want to come back and work on the relationship.
1: At least they're coming back. And you keep mentioning this Gottman's method. If you mm-hmm. want to explain that a little bit, that might be good because it sounds like you have this general approach to the session, which is nice. You're not going in uh, without any ideas of what to do. You've got some parameters that you're going for.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the Gottmans are basically like uh, the higher being in the couple's research field. So the Gottmans have been researching couples for like the past 30 years. Uh, They're actually a husband and wife couple, John and Julie Gottman. Uh, They're both therapists um, and researchers. What they have studied and found is really the science behind what makes a relationship work and what makes a relationship a disaster. And it's really cool that we can kind of actually put scientific or like a kind of formula to make sure our relationship works. In terms of the Gottman method, what happens is when I'm first meeting a couple, it's an assessment phase. So I like to tell people who are giving me a call, what that means is like when you go to a doctor and you say, ow, this hurts, they're going to run some tests on you. They're not just going to open you up for like open heart surgery after you saying an owie. And so the assessment phase is uh, that first session of the couple together. I'm learning the history of the problem. How long has it been a problem? How do you try to solve the problem? What makes the problem worse and escalates conflicts for you? So I I get a really good understanding of what's going on and what they're struggling with. Then the next part of that first session, I want to get to know their story as a couple. And so this part I love because this is why they got together. This is why they're here, why they're trying to save the relationship and This helps them end on a more positive note, usually, since I do this part last. And so I asked, you know, how do two meet? What were your first impressions of each other? Tell me about the good times when you were dating or when you first got married. And then you get to see them smile and reminisce on all the happy times together that they had as a couple. And then that really helps me know, okay, we have somewhere to work with here. At least there's still magic between them. So that's only the first session. All that's in the first session. It's <laughs> um, a lot. Yeah, yeah. So the there's a couple other steps in the assessment process. Then after that, um, if they decide to hop on board with pursuing therapy, still, I have to send them these online assessments, and they're the Gottman assessments. Really easy online tool where they fill out an online questionnaire. I get all their answers, which is really great. Um, the couples don't get to see each other's answers. So I get all their answers and I see really how bad it is and really how they think about their partner and the relationship with that information. I grab all that and I get to have a one-on-one with each partner of the couple, just to get everything I can about their family history, about their relationship history, because past patterns can also determine why you still have this pattern, maybe. And to also, I I see them one-on-one also just to get their perspective of the relationship. You know, if there's maybe like a big fight that brought them to my office, I want to get both of their perspectives on that fight because obviously it's not lining up and they're not able to understand it and manage it very well. So I also get that. So last part of the assessment phase is me just meeting them all together and giving them their feedback of the assessments of, Hey, this is really great in this area. You have a really strong friendship. Managing conflict is not your strong suit. This is what we're going to work on in therapy. Um, And so I'll just do that with all the categories uh, for feedback.
1: It's a big process, but you're obviously getting lots and lots of information. And you mentioned Uh, the magic between the couple, do you see people come in the first session and, and there's just nothing there anymore?
0: Oh yeah. It's th- that one's sad. But what's even more sad than that one though is one partner who's still attempting to make the bid for the magic. And then the other partner is just um in such a dark place or has so much resentment buildup, they're not able to receive it. They're not. And it's, yeah, it's tough to watch because you see someone longing and trying to reach out for that connection. And then the other one, we call it turning towards and turning um, against in the Gottman method. And so the the other person will turn away or turn against their bid for connection. So that's tough to watch.
1: At that point, is therapy really going to do anything? Or is it maybe that the relationship can't be salvaged?
0: Um, I, I still think it can be salvaged at that point. I have been working with this one couple for the past year who, who was in, in that point. Actually, both of them were pretty resentful of each other, I would say. But the love is still there. The love is still there. So we have been working for the past year trying to, instead of get out of that negative perspective of you know making those snickering comments or the eye rolls or saying something contemptuous towards now, actually thinking more positively about your partner it's taken a year. So it does take a lot of work and they're still, I'm working with them and there's much more to do. So it can happen, but not many couples are willing to put in the work for it, unfortunately.
1: So it's the effort that determines whether it's going to work.
0: A lot of times. Yeah. I, I think that's one thing, like with the divorce rate going up so much, people are like, all right, well, let me just get a divorce. And they take the same habits to the next relationship, which they're going to end up in the same place. So, so it's kind of frustrating to watch the divorce rate go high. Like I wish it was required for people to have like healthy relationship classes when they get married or something, maybe that's in our future, hopefully though.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Maybe to get a marriage license, you'll have to go to some kind of couples therapy or get some kind of classes on what it looks like to be in a healthy relationship, but Mm -hmm. I doubt it.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then you talked about splitting the couple apart and doing an Mm -hmm. interview one-on-one. Yeah. What is that like once you've seen these people together and you've seen their relationship, how they treat each other at one time, and now you're seeing them separately?
0: Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. Sometimes when I'm meeting with a partner who maybe has a lot more resentment and contempt for the other one. Sometimes what I will see as a pattern is they'll be kind of um, victim, victimizing themselves and saying like, oh, you know, they do this to me and I can't believe they don't do this. Like really, they're basically, they're saying, fix them, fix that problem over there. Don't worry about me. And I'm like, "Mm, we have some stuff going on here too (laughs) that we need to work on. So those those individual one-on-one interviews are really important for me to get how they see their role in the relationship because if they don't even know that they're also part of the problem then we need a huge wake-up call (laughs) to to get them on the same page because they're both part of the problem it's not just one person
1: so you never see where it isn't just one person you don't have one person who actually is like really good in the relationship and it's the other partner who's really really nasty and kind of a monster
0: okay well I do see that too okay (laughs) Yeah. There, there are some who are just, you know, negative or or bad eggs, but once you open them up to that idea and kind of like, I, I hold a mirror to them and say, do you realize, you know, when you do this and how it affects them and they feel X, Y, Z, what would it be like for you to say it this way to them? And then when they say it that more gentle way to their partner, when I direct them to do that there's crying involved. There's like this sense of peace and relief that I see in them. Their body language becomes more soft. So really holding up that mirror to the person who who may be the, the more negative one in the relationship, it has to be done uh, in order to go through couples therapy.
1: You have to show them what it's like. And you mentioned your own bias. You have to go in, you have to be neutral. After that one-on-one session, is it much more difficult to stay unbiased? Because now you might have seen one person's way, way worse. Like you (laughs) can kind of sympathize. Wow, I see why
0: this relationship's unhappy. Yeah. So I try to do that in a way as when I see it in session. So for example, um, when I see one of the four horsemen come up from the Gauntmans, so if I see contempt coming up and someone says something really nasty to someone, I say, whoa, okay, that was, that was filled with a lot of contempt. Can we try saying that in a, in a different way that lets our partner know how we really feel? Because if we're talking to someone with just a bunch of anger, the other person's not going to receive it. What's really behind all that anger and nastiness is really a wish that, that just isn't getting fulfilled. They might've been saying it for like months or years and just got to the point where they're so frustrated and then it comes out in the nastiest way ever. So I try to get them back down and peel back those layers. What is it you're truly needing them to hear when you say blah, 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 and then things get softer and calmer and then the person can hear it and receive it.
1: Okay, so you're trying to work through the situation, kind of redirect the communication style.
0: Hmm. Lots of redirecting. Yeah. There's yeah. never a dull moment.
1: <laughs> I, I can imagine if they're already in therapy, it's not going to be dull. And what are the four horsemen that you mentioned? Mm-hmm. Just so mm-hmm. I can get that.
0: Yeah. So the four horsemen are uh, what the Gottmans have come up with with relationship predictors of the relationship tanking. Um, Just because you have the four horsemen doesn't mean you're automatically, you know, on the way to your relationship ending. It's just a predictor. If it's going to be around for a long time, your relationship isn't going to stick around for a long time. So the four horsemen are um, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Uh, Do you want me to tell you a little bit about each of those?
1: Yeah, that'd be good because some of those, I'm not entirely sure what they mean.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'll start with criticism, which is really easy for uh, a lot of people to understand. Criticism is really just a, a complaint, but, but saying it in a way that makes your partner um, kind of question their character. So I'll use the, the lovely example that we all know of the husband forgetting to take out the trash after the wife has asked them, you know, day in, day out, right? And so the wife notices that the trash hasn't been taken out for two cycles and the wife goes, why haven't you taken out the trash? You're always so lazy. You never listen to me. I can't believe you missed this again. I'm so angry. So that's a criticism because when, when we receive that as a listener, that's, oh my gosh, am I a bad husband? Can I not do anything because I'm lazy and she thinks I'm lazy? Blah, 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 blah. So that's really criticizing the character of your partner rather than the actual situation, the object of the thing. With criticism, do you actually want me to go over the antidotes to the four horsemen? Like how to, how I kind of redirect them in the better light?
1: Yeah, that'd be good too. Cause I don't know how to get around some of those. It sounds like some of these problems are usually where the couples just fight and are nasty to one another and you can't really see a way out of it.
0: Yeah. It blows up and then they don't talk to each other for days. Right. So with that example, I slow things down and I say, uh, we, we use kind of a method or a formula called I statements. Have you ever heard of I statements? I think I
1: have a little bit a long time ago. I did take introduction to psychology.
0: Yes. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, so I statements help the speaker really state what emotions are going on inside them and help identify the actual issue of the, the problem rather than putting the blame of the problem on the other person. So a great I feel statement that would be an antidote for the wife yelling at the husband like that would be, I feel, um, let's see, what does she probably feel? I feel uncared for when I notice the trash hasn't been taken out after I've told you two times. I really need you to, you know, listen to me and take out the, the trash on one of the first few times that I ask because you doing these acts of service helped me feel loved. So that said in a lot calmer way and a lot more loving way than you're so lazy, you never, why don't you, right? So that's that's really the antidote to that, just being a lot more calm, you taking responsibility for how things making you feel, and you're not placing the feelings on that other person you're not putting blame on them so to go into the second of the four horsemen we have defensiveness and so what defensiveness is is trying to protect yourself from criticism so in that same situation of the wife yelling about the trash uh maybe the husband is going oh but you haven't done dishes in five days right (laughs) We're trying to put that blame back on the other person. We're all guilty of it. And I, and I tell my couples when I'm going over this, I'm like, the four horsemen come up in my relationship too. This is normal. We all see this, right? It's important how we repair and how we uh, react with this. So if there's defensiveness like that, and he goes, but you do this, blah, blah, blah. The antidote to that is him also taking responsibility. So when his wife comes up and says, you know, is mad about the trash, he should go. You know what? You're right. I haven't been really listening lately. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to go take out the trash right now. And if you know what? You need some help with the dishes, I would love to help you. That's an extra added bonus, to help with the dishes. (laughs) But, But really taking responsibility for at least part of the issue instead of trying to play the victim or put all the blame back onto somebody else and deflect. That's really- A lot better way of handling a situation like that.
1: Yeah. But you have a lot of people who probably aren't the calmest people in the world. Do you see that some of them Mm -hmm. just can't be soft and can't be kind? They're always just going to come at things aggressively.
0: I have had people like that and they don't last that long in therapy. (laughs) They don't want to work hard on the relationship. They, the, the people who do struggle with that and who, who do stick around, they will eventually get softer. Or if maybe things are going good for a while. And then all of a sudden we see contempt or all of a sudden we see some defensiveness going on. I'll slow things down and be, Hey, 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 what, what just happened there? What came up for you? And then we kind of break that down to see what really prevented them from giving the antidote to one of the four horsemen. It's really beautiful.
1: It's nice to see it work. Uh, I'm sure it's mm-hmm. nice to see it work. Uh- but these seem like sort of the easier problems to solve, you know, taking out the trash is something where, Mm -hmm. well, you start taking out the trash, you stop coming back at your partner and telling them to do the dishes, but there's much, much harsher problems like cheating or really aggressive behavior. Maybe somebody can't express themselves unless they're just cussing each other out.
0: Right. Uh, How do you
1: get around things like that that are much deeper, harder problems to solve?
0: hmm. So the good thing about my office is instead of couch, I have two different chairs, so they have their own little pods. <laughs> so, so that's a, a good first start for them to be able to have their own safe space and bubble. If a couple is really uh, volatile like that, if they're cussing at each other like that, um, I don't want that happen in my office because that's not going to be productive. When I see them arguing or something, or uh, I see them being contemptuous in my office towards each other, I'll softly say, hey, guys, hey, is this working for you? So they might keep arguing and be like, all right, guys, you're paying me. But you guys are fighting in front of me. Would you rather learn how to deal better with this? Or do you guys want to keep fighting? I'll literally say it to them like that. And then they'll kind of (laughs) quiet down and look at me and be like, and then silently give me their permission to kind of teach them and help guide them through a better conversation with that.
1: Okay. And you come off as kind of a calm person in general, but if you see people fighting in front of you, are you scared? You get kind of amped up and not really know what's going to happen, how you're going to react, or can you just keep it level and say, all right, calm down, kind of treat them like toddlers.
0: Mm. So I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't affected when I see aggression like that in session. Um, I do notice my own heartbeat elevating when I see that because I'm like, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know if they're going to be violent because I don't know what kind of person they are really at home. We only see like a small sliver of what really happens in the couple uh, when they come into therapy. Um, I haven't ever like feared for my life or anything. Um, I have had instances where the partner is usually top of their lungs yelling. Usually it's when an affair happens. And so while that's not, I guess, clinically therapeutic, uh, in a sense, sometimes the partner needs to just get all that out. Sometimes the, the partner who's receiving that, the partner who stepped out on the relationship, who's receiving that, they'll, they'll sit there and they take it. And the, the yelling isn't the problem. It becomes a problem when they're putting down their partner. So this is actually perfect because this goes into contempt. Uh, this is the other of the four horsemen. So contempt is putting down your partner, like putting yourself in a position of superiority and making your partner feel uh, inferior. So this can be seen a lot in couples who have so much built up resentment, um, who really uh, are, are not having any of those feelings of in love uh, anymore. So a great example of what contempt can look like can be they're yelling at each other. Maybe they're calling them names, uh, like cussing at them or something like that. I don't allow that in my office because that's not going to be effective. So when I see them getting heightened like that, I say, Hey. Hey, we've got some contempt in here. Let's slow down and see if we can say that a different way. So sometimes it can get like a little um, excited. I'll, I'll use the word um, excited and anxious sometimes. But usually usually it can be handled. There's only a couple of times where, to, where I've had people walk out just because they needed to take a break from everything because it was so overwhelming. There was one woman when I was working with them on an affair the husband seemed very, very narcissistic, self-centered and not, he took responsibility for the affair, but wasn't really understanding the emotional impact that it had on his wife. And so of course she's frustrated because she feels so alone. She's so hurt. And so she got to the point where she, she actually walked out of the room. And at that point, when they walk out of the room, I, I can't help them. I can only help them if I've got them in there with me. So it does happen sometimes where things get so heated that, that people do walk out. It hasn't happened in a while. Uh, and it's not something that happens so often, though.
1: Nice to hear it doesn't happen too often for you. Has anybody gotten physically violent in one of your sessions?
0: Oh, no. Mm-mm. I would say the biggest physical reaction I get is when so this is actually going into the fourth horseman. <laughs> so the biggest reaction I get is when someone is so overloaded with the amount of stress that they're having within the session they get to a point where it's called stonewalling stonewalling is the fourth horseman and this is when uh just our physical arousal system is just it's going offline we are overloaded with so much going on in the room if you're familiar with like fight flight freeze kind of mode right so that's what's happening to our bodies um inside i kind of explain it to them because usually, this is almost always the case, usually one partner kind of shuts down during conflict, and then the other partner is the, the, the fix-it, the problem solver, and so they try to pursue that partner who's shut down. The partner who's shut down is not going to respond. They're just too overloaded with all that stress in the moment. So the biggest physical reaction I might see is them shaking, or um, they may clench their fists, and I kind of work with that, actually. There's something called progressive muscle relaxation, where you tense different areas of your body and you release them. And so I kind of help them use that as a way to diffuse uh, the stonewalling that they're experiencing. It's really amazing what just like a few moments of deep breathing and tensing and releasing different areas of your body does for a person.
1: Wow. You got a lot going on. You're looking for a lot during a session. It's not just what they're saying. It's how they're moving Mm. their bodies. It's yeah too much for me to keep track of.
0: Oh, it's a lot. (laughs) My eyes are constantly going back and forth, just looking at, at how they're responding and how they're receiving what their partner's saying.
1: Yeah. And you're having to do all this in a short period of time in terms of figuring out what's going on and how to diffuse the situation. Mm -hmm. Are there times during a session where you just don't really know what to do
0: all the time? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess. How do you react to that? Cause that would be scary for me if I'm sitting there watching somebody fight or they're talking about something very emotional. And in my head, I'm going, I can't help you. Like I, this is weird for me. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when that happens, um, I slow things down, not only for them, but I do it for myself. I just don't verbalize it <laughs> because sometimes my mind does go blank and I'm like, okay, what the heck do I do next? So that is when I slow things down and I may repeat maybe a a recent sentence that one of them has said that maybe either cut someone really deep or that was really an impactful statement. And I'll kind of hang on to that sentence and I'll say it again. And so I'll say, okay, you know, partner, when you hear them say X, Y, Z, what happens for you? What goes on in your body? What emotions start coming up for you? And so we'll just, we'll start there and, and work from that framework after I don't know what the heck to do.
1: <laughs> it's good. You've got some little tricks up yeah. your sleeve to yeah. get around that situation. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the therapy sounds like it's talking with them and getting them to express themselves, but yes. do you give any recommendations or homework for when they leave the session? Like, okay, over the next week or so, you're going to do X and the other partner's going to do Y. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So sometimes not all couples like homework. Um, Like, for example, I've been working with this one couple since like, I don't know, December or November. And every time we tried to do homework, they're like, we forgot it. We didn't talk about it. We didn't, you know, remember what it was. And so at that point, assigning a homework for couples like that isn't really effective just because they're not going to do it. But they really show up for therapy and they, they invest a lot when they're in session with me. For the couples who are able to be a little bit more active um, and engage in homework, I would say the biggest assignments that I do is trying to build um, their friendship side of things. So what that can look like is giving appreciations. And this is actually um, another antidote to the horseman. And this can be for criticism and contempt. Of the giving appreciations. So, what I make them do, I try to, um, this doesn't happen every session, but I try to help them leave on a more positive note because there's something called an emotional bank account. I can get into that later too. So, to put a deposit in their emotional bank account, I have them say a specific appreciation action about their partner. And so, I tell them, I don't want to hear something general like, oh, you're such a good mother and it's so helpful. Okay, why are they a good mother? What are they doing specifically? And how does it actually make you feel? So I tell them to say something um, more specific and directed. So, an example could be like, you know, when I see you making lunges for the kids and taking them to the soccer practices, it makes me feel so happy inside because this is the dream that I had when I envisioned having a family with you. And this helps me feel so loved and so positive about our relationship when I see that that is so much more impactful than you're such a great mom (laughs) right
1: right it's so much more powerful it's got so much more detail and you can really express yourself and show appreciation
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think as couples um, a lot of times people just stop putting in that extra effort into the relationship and that's really how they wind up in my office is that you know, you get comfortable with things and you think, you know, everything's hunky-dory and that you don't need to put any more effort into the relationship when no, that is that is very wrong. Like your whole life, you know, if you're spending your whole life with your partner, you should be actively working on the relationship. It's not going to think about it like a plant. It's not going to grow and develop or, you know, stay alive if you're not feeding it, if you're not giving it sunlight, giving it water. So I try to explain it that way.
1: Is that maybe the biggest problem that leads to people coming to couples therapy is that they just stop working on the relationship. Cause that's one thing mm-hmm. I fear about relationships is you're, you're going to become a roommate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, a lot of the times this has actually been kind of a thing recently. A lot of my parents are coming in and it's really ever since the kids, things were a lot different. You know, ever since the kids, we stopped having sex or we stopped communicating and connecting and having date night. So it is a big life transition when you add kids into the picture and it is really hard to have couple time while you're trying to focus on them too. But um, they come to see me and we try to find different ways to make it work now. I think another big one is when they get to see me, they're at the point where they're fighting all the time when they tell me about how in the beginning of the relationship they didn't fight there wasn't you know things to fight about so i go into detective mode and i'm like okay what really happened here why are we still you know fighting when in the beginning you guys were pretty good and you didn't really have a lot of arguments usually the case is there's kind of one big fight that had happened and it just got blown over. It never really got fully resolved. So there's resentment. And so that resentment gets taken into a fight one year later, three years later, five years later. And then they see me.
1: So they hold on to it. And you mentioned that emotional bank account. Is that related yeah. to those big fights that just keep coming back?
0: Yeah. So the emotional bank account's really important to keep as full as you can. So this is another Gottman thing. I know I'm tooting their horn they're probably going to get so much advertising from, (laughs) (laughs) they're getting a lot of free advertising for me right now. Um, So the emotional bank account is the same concept as when you put money into your own bank account, right? You want to see it grow and have enough money in there for in case of an emergency, right? So in case you need to um, make a big withdrawal because of an emergency, you have that stash and you feel okay about it. It's the same way emotionally with couples. So for instance, If I have a big surplus in my emotional bank account, which means I feel loved by my partner, I feel connected with my partner, I feel like they're connecting with me, if there is a fight or even if there is like a a little bit of criticism, I'm going to let it roll off my back. I'm not going to take it personally because I think positively about my partner and I think they're also talking to me with the best intentions. I don't think they're trying to hurt me. That's really helpful. When couples are at the point where they have a low bank account or even a negative balance, which is not ever good. So this is for things like, you know, if there's an affair that had happened, that takes a big chunk from the emotional bank account. Or um, if it's just fight after fight after fight, we're constantly depleting the bank account. At that point, they're in something that's called negative sentiment override, what that means is instead of seeing our relationship in the more positive way because of the positive bank account, we're seeing them so negatively. So, the smallest thing that our partner may do that may be even neutral or positive, we're still going to take it the wrong way for a negative sentiment override. We're going to take it, oh, they're trying to aggravate me or they're trying to, you know, get me all riled up and think of our partner in a negative light. So, the emotional bank account is. One of the most important things that you can have in your relationship to feel secure, to feel loved, and to feel connected to your partner.
1: Okay, it's kind of like building up good karma in a sense. Yeah, you can think of it that way.
0: Yep, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you're not living and dying on every little moment. You've got some no. uh, rapport built up, and so it's like, yeah, one comment.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, like a good example for for me is I'm a highly sensitive person, which. I guess that makes sense that I'm a therapist because I guess therapists need to be sensitive. And so, whenever my significant other will say something jokingly, um, but I used to take it like really personally. Um, I I would I would take that and write it and think of myself in a negative light, think of him in a negative light, and that's not good for the relationship. So now at this point, we have a really good emotional bank account. You know, I think really positively of him. I know what he does or what he says isn't intended to hurt me. So if he does make a joke about something, um, especially if, if it's about me or if it's about something I do, I know that he's just making fun and that's his way of trying to connect with me. And if I see it that way, if I see, oh, he's trying to connect with me, that's another positive in my emotional bank account. It's really about perspective.
1: So you no longer take it as maybe he's making a slight at you. You know, he's trying to connect on more of a a loving, joking way.
0: Precisely. Yes. That's his love language, comedy.
1: (laughs) Well, hopefully he's funny.
0: Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully
1: it's (laughs) it's good jokes, you know. Yeah. Hopefully they land. Yeah. And with couples therapy, how long, maybe on average, do people stay in therapy? Because it's not going to get fixed in one session and mm-hmm. it, probably not two or three or four. And it's going to no. take a lot of communication, a lot of changes of lifestyle. So is mm-hmm. it maybe an average of a year or two years just continuing?
0: Um, you know, it really depends what their, their issue came in for, um, So if it is something like a a big betrayal, like infidelity or addiction or um, maybe spending problem, if it's something like that, they're going to be with me at least one to three years, usually around the two-year mark. And, And of course, it's not every week for three years. You know, eventually we get to the point where, okay, maybe we only see each other twice a month and then once a month and then every other month. I've been working with this one couple who I've been seeing them for over a year and we're kind of at that point where they're able to manage their conflict really well without me. Like if they get into something at home, they can respond a lot better to each other. But just because we've gotten to a place where they can communicate and manage their conflicts better doesn't mean that our work is done there's still a lot of other betrayals that we have to unpack and explore and heal from so that can take maybe another year it really depends um i would say on average people are seeing me between 10 to 16 sessions
1: and is that once a month
0: no um i like to at least start out seeing them weekly Yeah. um, I I try to see them as often as possible um, and try to, you know, really offload them with a lot of education so that they can then use the tools. And so as we start seeing each other less, the goal or hope is that they use those tools that we've talked about. And then they'll kind of come in for these things that they just can't get through on their own. And so I help them and guide them through those instances. So at that point, then they're coming twice a month, once a month, or every so often.
1: Okay. So more focused help instead of broad sessions towards Mm -hmm. the end. You're right. And I'm sure you can see people make progress. Do you ever see people try to fake progress? I mean, they're trying to tell you they've been working on things at home and things are happy, but you can tell they're really not doing well still.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'll check, I'll call them out on that. I'll be like, wait a second. You guys are saying you're doing better, but we're sitting here and we're talking here and you're talking about all these issues that are being brought up that we haven't talked about before. What's going on? Um, so yeah, sometimes. Um, and, and if it's the case of, yeah, we don't work on X, Y, Z at home, then okay, let's make the, the most of our time together here in session that we can. And hopefully that sticks and then they can use that at home
1: interesting. People are trying to slide one by you.
0: Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, I mean, a lot of times therapy is really hard because even though, you know, it's supposed to be a non-judgmental space, sometimes people have had a bad experience with therapists where they did feel judged. So they might put on that, um, kind of forefront of, oh yeah, things are going well. You know, um, I'm not being contemptuous against my partner anymore. And then the other partner will kind of look at them like, like giving them the side eye. And I noticed that. And I'm like, okay, well, something you just said there made the other partner change their body and language here. So I turned to that partner and say, what came up for you when they were talking about how things are going well at home? <laughs> and then they'll go into and actually revealing what's truly going on.
1: Got to keep an eye out for the mm-hmm. glances and the body movements.
0: Yes. Yes. It's constant, constant scanning.
1: Ooh, so much going on. Mm-hmm. And we are now getting towards the end of our session. Yeah. And, and I know like, I know therapists like to, to keep on schedule, so I won't keep you here for much longer. But one thing that I wanted to end on was how you feel after these sessions as a therapist, because you've got people letting out lots and lots of emotions, yeah. they might be bringing up some pretty disturbing things or some mm-hmm. things you probably didn't want to hear, uh, at any point in your life after the mm-hmm. session, how do you kind of withdraw from the situation and kind of put it in the back of your mind and not let it affect your personal feelings and personal life in general?
0: Yeah, I think, um, if the, if I had a really hard day, like if I had some tough sessions where there, there was just a lot of exploring um resentments or um trying to heal from something the the way i de- decompress the best is i actually can walk to my office it's really great so i'll walk home and um i'll usually meet my partner around the neighborhood and he's got our dog and we'll take our dog for a walk and we'll just talk and we'll decompress and that usually automatically gives me a sense of you know feeling so much lighter to be with my partner, to, to walk with my dog, to, to be moving my body and getting that excess energy out from the session. Um, all of that's super helpful in, in letting things you know feel a lot better. Uh, there's many sessions where I'll kind of come home and I'll just hug my partner as tight as I can because it reminds me when, when I see couples in a really tough spot, it reminds me, gosh, I really have it good. I love this person so much and I'm so happy and thankful that, you know, they, they treat me so well and we have a healthy relationship.
1: All right. So you have a coping method mechanism. That's good. I you're do. not just coming home and exploding on your partner because you didn't take out the trash no. or anything like that. Yeah.
0: No, yeah. that would not be following my own advice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's gotta be tough to hear most of those things and then return to a normal life where you're not feeling like you're in a huge fight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it can sometimes be scary because some things are just always so common in couples therapy. And I'll be like, my partner and I have had this fight or I felt the same way that this partner did during, you know, a fight like this. So um, sometimes I, I do identify a lot with whatever my couples come in with. And I think that also makes me a good couples therapist because I can really relate and see things from their point of view.
1: Well, they're lucky to have you. I'm sure you're doing a great job. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll let you get out of here. If you want to stick on for just a second after I stop recording, we'll be mm-hmm. finished. Okay. And thanks for listening, everyone.